Um, we, Anthony and I, and as a staff, um, it's weird. We, we debated, not really debated, but kind of thought through, do we talk about this? And, you know, obviously, when you look across the landscape of our world and our nation and our country today, there's just always something to lament. There's always something to be, uh, to be sad about because it's a broken world that we live in. And this is not new, right? That This has been true since Genesis 3, that there's been brokenness and there's been pain. Um, but we want to take a moment as a congregation this morning and pray for the chaos and the turmoil that's happening in Charlottesville. Uh, if you have not had an opportunity to, uh, to listen in on the news, to watch the videos, to see what's happening out there, please know right now this is not a political stance one way or another. This is a stance from a church saying that people are hurting and broken and they need prayer. And the reality of the situation is that as a Christian, I know and I believe that the only true answer to the problem of this world is Christ. It's love, and it's found in him, and the church must respond. There are churches all over Charlottesville. It's not a town much different from ours, big college town, okay? What's happening there could happen here. And I want to pray for the churches that are there in conjunction with the text that we'll preach through today, which calls the church and calls Christians to live lives in a credible way, to live lives of honesty and integrity and gospel centrality, so that when moments like this come up, when the city is in turmoil and broken, they look to the church and say, how do we find healing? And then we say, blessed is the peacemaker. And that's what we find in the church, that's what we find in Jesus. And so we empathize and we sympathize and remember what's happening over there, not know, or knowing full well that none of us in here are, all, are any much better on whatever side in between that you think you land on at any ideological level. That we're all in need of Jesus. But there is real brokenness and pain in our country. And so we're going to pray that God would bring healing. And we're going to pray that he would use his people to do so. So you guys bow your heads with me. Jesus. This world is not perfect. Its people are not perfect. God, because sin is real and because hatred is real and because uh, oftentimes, even as we see in your word, people love to profit off of hate, love to profit off of uh, hurt. God, for whatever reason, God, we, uh, we come together, God, as your people, united with honest millions, probably, of churches across our country, God, and just saying, Lord, please bring healing to our nation, bring healing to that city. God, we pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the church of God that would say, man, where there is sin that we have been akin to, that you would bring conviction and lead us in repentance. God, that we would walk in the power of the Spirit, God, to be leaders on the forefront of peacemaking. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are mourning and grieving. God, predominantly in that town right now, our brothers and sisters of color, God, that are, that are, that are looking to a situation with, with no understanding of which way to turn. And God, we pray that you would show up in their eyes and the ears of all in that area, in that region, would look up and see your presence. We know, God, that it is in your presence we find the fullness of joy, we find refreshment, we find peace. God, we pray for the churches in Charlottesville, God, that you would raise them up. God, that they would be credible witnesses to the gospel truths, God, that you are love. And that, God, you bring goodness through your people. God, would they pray, would they share, would they preach?
with hope and with love and the presence of God at their hand. God, we realize, and lastly, just, God, we confess that we are in desperate need of you, as is everyone over there. And God, we ask that you'd lead us in the way everlasting. God, that Redemption Flagstaff and every Christian here in the room, God, that we would live lives of integrity and credibility that, again, should Flagstaff ever call when these issues come knocking on our door and they are not far away, God, that we would be your people that pursue peace and hope and love in the name of Jesus, that we bring about restoration and redemption and hope to a broken culture. God, we thank you that you are the one that's on the mend or mending this world. And God, we just pray that you'd use us in that pursuit. Heavenly Father, we love you. We pray you bless the word of God this morning. We thank you for what uh, is offered to us through it. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. That's where we're going to be for the rest of the day. We've got 38 verses to cover. We're going to give you the whole first chunk here in just a moment. Okay? I do want to point out that we have this uh, bubble thing above our head. Uh, this we can't get rid of. And so I hate it. And I just want you to know we're not trying to be cool because that's not cool. Okay? Uh, it, it Honestly, it looks like a weird like Petri dish. Like we're getting to infect you with E. coli or something. Um, we're not. Okay? Uh, Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 20. Here's the deal. If you haven't been with us in the book of Acts, it's the story of the early church. Jesus ascends to heaven, and he gives a, a kind of a commission to the church, go and take my gospel to the entire world, and they start doing that, and they've been wildly successful, right? This band that kind of started with these 11, oh yeah, we're getting there, we're getting there, brother. Uh, you know, hear me, give, give me yours. No, I'm just fine. All right. So uh, what started with 11 uh, has now jumped into the tens, if not the hundreds of thousands across the region that are now calling themselves and identifying themselves as Christian Jesus as Lord, right? Uh, and so now we fast forward to this moment. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea that what you believe matters with an emphasis on the belief and a not emphasis on the you. Because we've said, man, oftentimes uh, we feel that the culture is saying, man, what you believe matters. And putting the emphasis on how you interpret and what your belief is, as opposed to the belief and the content of the belief itself, which informs the way we act. Today, it's kind of what you do with what you believe matters. And its impact with other people and its impact in your own heart and soul and in your witness to the world if you're here and you're a Christian. But even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just here and you're asking questions and exploring. Listen, what you believe leads to what you do and what you do matters as well in the engagement with the world and the way you treat people and the way they see you, view you, and will listen to you when you have something to say. So Acts chapter 20, if you need a Bible, I want you to follow. Man, is someone clicking? What is going on? Our mic broke last week. We forgot to buy a new one, so that's what's going on there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to follow along. The purpose of this is we could just make stuff up and type it on the screen, and you wouldn't know, right? So we've actually thought about doing that just to see if anyone's paying attention, okay? Uh, but then Bob started coming to church, and then uh, <laughs> he actually reads. And so um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. If you don't own one, it's a free gift to you. Please take this home. Just raise your hand. Don't feel weird about it. We give out tons every single week. And then you can follow along with us, okay? Um, so in Acts chapter 20, we now come into this moment uh, where Paul, having traveled around the region preaching the gospel, uh, is now getting re ready to say his final goodbye to his closest friends at the church in Ephesus. Now, this whole thing, this whole speech he's about to give is built on a platform of credibility that he has achieved because of the way he has ministered well to the Ephesian church, because of the way he has lived his life, 
right? In other words, I think that the speech he's about to give them, what he's about to call them out in, he even uses the word admonish, which is kind of to correct gently. You're doing this wrong. Let me correct you, admonish you, right? He does this in a place where there has been this built-up relational clout that allows him to speak with authority. Now, when I first started dating my, my wife, Verity, and that was nine years ago, okay, if... Uh, her and I, and, and I, you know what, I'm going to air kind of maybe my, my own dirty laundry instead of hers, okay? Uh, if when we first started dating, or let me tell you this, when we first started dating, she lived up in Laguna Beach, okay? I, I lived down in Encinitas. Now, I lived with four other young fellas, and every morning we got up, grabbed our surfboards, went surfing, grabbed a burrito on the way home, got into our house, took off the wetsuits, sand everywhere, while biting burritos, so there's egg and bacon on the floor, okay? We went in the jacuzzi in the back, sat in there for a while, then just walked through the house on shag carpet. So I don't know how many layers and colors of mold there were underneath there, okay? The couch had, I don't know, probably $77 worth of change underneath it. I mean, so I'm trying to characterize a picture of what this home was. I was inviting this new girl I was dating to come and explore, let alone the girl from, you know, OC. And so... And so I said, yeah, come on over. And so she walks in the house, and she sees stuff on the floor. She smells what everyone smells in a house with five guys who don't clean, okay? Um, but she says nothing, right? Like, like, there was no moment of, like, hey, you're disgusting. Like, <laughs> and I, I might die, right? Like, there's, she doesn't give that. But now, right, fast forward to nine years later, okay, I can't come home and leave my shoes anywhere but on the shoe rack, Right? Like, so, so if I come home and my, like, my shoulder bag, not dirty, right? My shoulder bag, if that ends up on the couch, I'm sleeping on that couch, right? She's like, hey, man, like, if you're going to dirty it, sleep in your own filth, okay? And so, like, that now, right, there's this, there's nine years of, all right, you actually love me so you can say some things that if you said day one, hey, leave, right? Like, we're not dating anymore because you're a terrible person. So, no, no, here's what goes on with, with Paul. He has done so much investment and lived so much life with these people that what he says and how he corrects and how he moves and the things that he says and even then the calling that God has placed on his life that I think oftentimes if we're in that circle, we would have said, amen, I don't know if that's God speaking, but no, they believe him because he's a credible witness due to the way he has lived life with people. So, so listen, what, what you do matters. Okay, there's a lie in our culture that at least starts with belief that, hey, you, I'll believe what I'll believe, and then you believe what you believe, and then we just don't affect each other, and then that's fine. I'm telling you, that's just absolutely impossible because everything you believe infects and affects everything you do, and what you do affects other people. And if you don't even think so, maybe on the proactive end, you can be proactive enough to not allow your actions to impede too much because you can surround yourself in a little bubble where maybe only people who only think, act, and do things like you do them, then you're all together. But I guarantee you that once someone pushes up against your beliefs with their beliefs or does something that you wouldn't do or would do in a certain circumstance, man, then there is friction and the reactive part of you is going to affect people. The whole lie that what you believe and what you do, if it's just for you, doesn't affect other people, is just false. 
And so if that's true, then we need to take seriously the calling that we get from Scripture. It says, man, it matters how we live before each other. It matters that if I want to come to you, even in this moment, and have you for any reason listen to me. I know there's some of you in the room that have never met me before. And so you're just here probably because, well, I don't know. But hopefully you're listening at a certain level, even though there's no real relationship here. But if you know me well, you you would listen more, right? That's kind of the idea of the way community and family works. And that's what we get to see Paul do here. And so uh, what I'm going to give us is a summary of the first 17 verses. Uh, And here's why. There's just a lot to do. Uh, The last 21 are, are really heavy hitters. And so in the first 17, let me just give you a rundown of what's going on. Paul is wrapping up his third missionary journey. He's trying to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. Now, Pentecost circles all the way back to Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descends upon the people of God for the very first time. And so he's trying to get back to that Pentecost celebration with the church, and so he's trying to do it before a certain time. There's a deadline where he has to be, so he's moving to these cities very quickly in the first 17 verses. He goes to Macedonia, Syria, Troas, Philippi, Assos, Mytilene, Caius, which is the birthplace of Homer, uh, Samos, which is the home of Pythagoras, for all you math nerds, okay? Um, that's A squared plus B squared equals C squared, if you don't know, okay? And then uh, he ends up in this city, Miletus, which is the city that he's in before heading off to Jerusalem. Now, um, one story of note, and it's the story that I believe uh, our scripture reader read for you this morning, that Katie read for you this morning, um, and it's of this guy, uh, Eutychus. Now, so here's, here's the story, and it's brilliant, uh, because Paul, um, he was preaching, and you kind of imagine them in kind of this upper room hallway. And what I picture is kind of a stone window, right, where there's no actual window. It's just a hole in the wall. And you picture Eutychus, and he's kind of just, he's kind of just leaning up against it, right? And Paul starts preaching. 30 minutes by an hour. They get into hour two, hour three, hour four. And Paul just keeps going, right? So Eutychus... Sitting there as a disciple, trying to pay attention to be a diligent Christian, starts getting tired, okay? So he kind of starts closing his eyes, then he starts swaying, and then he falls, no, I'm not going to do it, but you thought, I was going to have to catch me. He falls out the window and plummets to his death while listening to Paul preach, okay? I mean, that's how long this dude was going. Now, some of you guys are like, dude, I felt that way here, right? Uh... And if that's, you should leave. Um, no, it's good. So, so he dies, right? So, so everyone's like, hey, man, like, Eutychus is dead. This is terrible. Paul goes down, probably nonchalant, because he's Paul and does this kind of stuff. Goes down to him, prays for Eutychus. Eutychus comes back to life, right? I mean, just your typical resurrection story at a Bible study, okay? Uh, and so the, I think the reason why is, is they're listing all these different cities, and surely Paul is going from city to city to city, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, living life with people, encouraging the saints. And I think they give us the story to say, listen, man, he, God's still at work. Like, God's still moving. The preaching of his word is still happening, and signs and wonders accompany that like it has throughout the much, uh, much of the book of Acts before our narrative here in the book, or, or sorry, in the city of, uh, of, uh, of Miletus. Now, Last thing, we'll finally, I promise you, read the first verse we'll look at. Um, In Miletus, Paul, again, desiring to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost, calls the Ephesian elders and says, Hey, guys, I don't have time to make it to Ephesus, but I'd love to see you before I go to Jerusalem. Would you guys be able to get together and and come see me in Miletus? And so they do. And we pick it up in verse 17, 18, excuse me. 
And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Ephesian elders come. He's sitting around. They have this little council meeting. He says, man, let me just, let me just recap. Now, this is not this, this, this arm wringing like, hey, I'm going to give you all this just so you have to. This is a celebration of what God had done through them. He says, man, since the first day I landed in Asia, since the first day I came to Ephesus and began to spend time with you, here is kind of what my life has been about. I've, I've tried to live in such a way uh, that my witness would be credible to you, that if you were to follow and do what I do, uh, that you would do it well. He says, my life was marked by humility. It's marked by service, marked by empathy, and marked by shared life. Now, now man, it, this engagement with the people around us, and all, listen, just your friends, your family, whoever it is, your co-workers, the people you live life with. I encourage you significantly from the word of God that the way you should live is one of humility, service, empathy, and shared life. That if, if you want to have some type of witness to speak truth into their lives, okay, uh, you need to live like this. That, that if you just want to, if you, you want to use your position of authority or just maybe use your, 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 uh, your sphere of influence in that moment just from a sheer authoritarian, I'm just going to yell louder than you type of mentality, that's foolishness. No, no, you build up credibility in marriage, right? So I often hear, well, you know, and this is just foolishness, but men say, well, my wife needs to respect me. And I'm like, come on, friend, no, respect is earned, Right? Respect, respect is an earned thing. It's, it's, it's trusting over time and consistency. Like, well, the Bible, yeah, the Bible also tells you to die yourself and be Jesus that sacrifices his life every day for the flourishing of your wife. So what's supposed to happen is this supposed to happen equally at the same time. And when one part suffers, the whole part suffers. And so, again, as you seek to try and have influence in our world, as I do believe, as we're planning for, praying for Charlottesville, that this church and us as Christians would have an influence in our city that would bring about hope, love, peace, and the gospel, that if we want to have that witness in the city, if you want to have that witness at your job, if you want to have that witness, parents with your kids, husband with your wife, wife with your husband, and so on and so forth, you need to begin to think through, well, what am I doing prior to me saying things? What, what are the things that actually mark my life? What am I doing? And is my life and my ministry and the work that I bring to the table credible and full of integrity? And if it's not, then listen, you're shooting your own self in the foot. And I wouldn't listen either. Now, this is not a call to perfection. It's impossible unless your name is Jesus. But it's a call towards a striving and a purposeful intention to live in such a way that you pursue humility, service, shared life, and empathy, okay? Um, just yesterday, uh, we wrapped up our, our fall meetings. Uh, we do like a pre-fall retreat thing with our team, and this is five years now going. We planned this church in 2012, and so we try and do these things, and they get around. And I remember the first time that we had our team meeting, we're all sitting around. This is back in a living room down in Tempe, Arizona, before we moved here to start this church. Uh, and everyone's sitting around, and the meeting was supposed to start, I think, at 7, um, and Anthony was in the room, and some of the, I don't know if anyone else is in the room that's here, but uh, we're sitting there, 
and 735 hits, 740 hits, I think like 750 hits, and we hit 8 o'clock, and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, we've been here for an hour, like, is someone going to start this meeting? Okay. And, and then it clicked for me, that, like, I'm supposed to start the meeting. <laughs> like, that, that's my job, like, I'm, I'm the lead pastor, you know? And so then I break in, like, all right, guys, let's do it, here we go, uh, did you guys enjoy that hour of fellowship I gave you intentionally? Um, and then you fast forward five years from then until yesterday, and I would hope, and I can't actually speak for my staff, but I hope that they listen and respect and follow things that I would say I think are the directions we should go with this church and, and, and all that more, than, more now than they did before, okay? Uh, because hopefully my life has, has been filled with this. And, and if it hasn't, listen, that's on me. The reality is if my staff all of a sudden stops listening to things that I'll say, uh, it's, it's maybe not because of them. It might be because of me, right? And, and if people in your life, parents, listen to me, if, if your parents just absolutely refuse to obey you all the time, listen, obviously they're kids and they're kind of demons, but, um, but there's a chance too that's on you. Does the rest of the life outside the moment of reprimand and rebuke and correction and admonishment and encouragement, um, does all of that build a stack that allows for your words to come across as truth? Yeah? Um, so Paul's doing this, and he's preaching, and then he gives them one final appeal about why they should listen to him before he goes on his uh, final words rant to the Ephesian elders. And he says this in verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he starts off here and says, listen up, guys. So I'm going to Jerusalem and I don't know what's going to happen there. I'm not sure what the Lord's going to do, uh, but it's probably not going to be good, right? Like, like from the physical sense, I'm probably going to end up in prison. There's a good chance I'll be beaten. And guys, guess what? There's probably a decent chance I'll die, okay? And, and he's saying this to some of his closest friends. Like, hey, man, I don't know what's coming, but, but death is probably on the other side of that door, okay? And, and here I go. Now, now, if I'm the friend and I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, then don't go. Like, that's, like, just stay here with us where it's cozy and warm, and we'll just have dinner. Like, why do this if not for the calling of God on the life of Paul to go and preach the gospel? And what I love is the context that we have here where the Ephesian elders will not try and hold him back. They will not say, hey, man, I don't know about that. That sounds too crazy. They won't try and check it. Well, maybe instead of doing this, maybe you do this. Or, hey, do you have enough protection? Like, did you, do you have a weapon? Like, did you figure that out? No, they say, all right, man, if that's what the Lord is saying and he's moving, well, then let's pray for you. Let, let, let us come around you and help encourage your calling. And again, I think you only do that in the context of a relationship that has been built, right? If someone in here, it's your first time visiting the church and you came to me and said, hey, man, I think I'm supposed to go to northern Sudan right now and just be and preach. And if I get killed, I get killed. Man, I might say like, Really? Have you asked other people that know you for more than three minutes? Okay. What do they say? Because what you see here is a confirmation of the calling in Paul's life to go and preach the gospel in Jerusalem, even if afflictions await him. Yeah. 
Now, Paul's answer to them in the midst of this whole thing, he's like, listen up. This stuff's probably coming down the pipe. But then verse 24, which, you know, I was that really rambunctious, excited, zealous Christian when I first got saved. So verse 24 sounded crazy enough, so I adopted it as my life verse, right? Um, I've got it, like, you know, imprinted on different things. It's, like, on my MacBook, you know. It shows up places and things like that. I don't have a tattoo of it yet, so it's not that serious. Um, but Acts 20, 24, and I memorized it in the NIV because that's what I was reading at the time, and so it kind of throws me off to read it from the ESV, but this idea of, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I consider my life worth nothing. If only I may finish the race, completing the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Okay, I want to break this down because this verse is the thrust for everything that we see Paul doing in this book. It's all this, okay? So let's break it down. He says, but, so in in contrast to anything that would care for me, he says, I do not account my life. Now, uh, I I think uh, oftentimes the world, uh, humanity does a a pretty good job of considering themselves as the NIV would say, I consider my life, right? I think we do a good job of taking account of us and thinking about us pretty well. But usually it's in a sense to kind of puff ourselves up. But no, Paul comes back and says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now, this, uh, I think if we're honest, flies in the seat of the pants of the of the culture today that puts kind of this self-love as the primary motivating factor for success for your life. You just need to love yourself more and respect yourself more and encourage yourself more and look more in the mirror and say, you're great. That's the reason why self-help books to this day right now are the number one highest selling books in America. Because you can go to the store and you can make yourself better. And then you can look in the mirror for as long as you can keep that diet going, right? And say, you're awesome and I love you. Now, that is, that is just so false. And here's why. And, and actually, let me, we, have, we have many friends that battle depression and anxiety. And so what I'm not saying is hate yourself. This is not the antithesis to love yourself. This isn't, hey, man, well, you need to loathe yourself. You need to look in the mirror and just beat yourself down. That's also sinful, demonic, and not from the Lord. But what he's saying is I do not account my life of any value to myself or as precious to myself. Because he knew full well that his only value comes from the Lord. Right, that, that he doesn't need to view himself as precious because as much as I or you or Paul could ever think of himself or herself as precious, the Lord looks down on his creation with more precious thoughts than the stars in the sky. That anything you think that you can do to buck yourself up will be mere child's play when it comes to studying and knowing what God the Father Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit think about the thing that they made. Do you understand that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as he's making all of creation for five days, he made all of these things and said it was good, right? And then on day six, in the last thing, the penultimate aspect of his creation was humanity. And he says, it will be the thing that I make in my image and will be the thing that makes my creation very good. To see, his thoughts about humanity are far more precious and beautiful than anything you could say to yourself in the mirror. 
See, the only thing that can give continued value without fail is someone who without fail can always think, feel, believe, and act the same way. And that's only God. Because I know that if I stand in front of the mirror today and I say all sorts of nice stuff about myself, believe me, I know my heart and I know my experience and I'm a, I'll be a different person and feel different things and think different things a week from now and have to say then different things in the mirror. Because I'm fallible and silly and swayed and moved by the world's culture and what the world defines as success and as beauty, right, about what's good and what's bad. But instead, if we have a final, absolute, definite reality, that is the mind and the heart of Jesus and the way he views and loves his creation, you, me, and everyone in this world created in the image of God, and the whole self-love thing is just foolish. What we need to do is account our lives, our desires, as worth nothing to us. As mere child's play, in light of the way God views his people. Dwelling on, the what, on what and how, the, how precious the thoughts are of God for you. That is where life is found. Because it will never change. God is going to think about you the same tomorrow as he did today. Whether or not you showed up today just crushing this Christian life and tomorrow you don't. Because when he looks upon us, he sees this creation that he made imprinted with the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so we, we spend time just as Paul saying, I, I, don't, I don't count my life worth anything to me. So he says, but only that it may finish the race, complete this task to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, listen, if, if there's anything then that now I know I'm called to, it's not to celebrate me. It's not to make much of me. It's not to pursue my status and my wealth and, and my et cetera, whatever your thing is. Uh, it's to constantly, in light of the way God views me, to go and then tell others about that same story. It's to look across the landscape of our nation right now and see that there are people that are hurting and broken and sad and lament and not consider our own self-righteousness but rather to think about how precious the thoughts are of the person that lost their life yesterday in Charlottesville. How precious are the thoughts of Jesus for those who grieve today because of the brokenness in our nation. How precious are the thoughts of God for those in our congregation today who are hurting, who are broken, who are sick, who are ill, and who need to know that they're loved more than they could ever love themselves. Like that is the thrust of Paul's life. And it's something worth dying for. For him and, man, in a, in a moment where we're like this, I think for me too. I'd hope for me too. That pursuing a gospel truth to share the goodness and the love of God with everyone would be worth my life. I hope it's worth the churches because, man, stuff is not getting easier. And that doesn't mean, honestly, what I'm 30, 33, I think I'm 33. Uh, so I don't know if in the next 50 or 60 years, if it's going to get to this point, but, it, but we know, man, it, it ain't getting better. The world's messed up. And the church now, not waiting for it to get really bad, now needs to prepare itself 
to say, man, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, completing the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. His final admonishments and encouragements for the people, starting in verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, this scene, so he's saying, like, guys, I'm going, and you're not going to see me again. This is the end. Here's my final thoughts. Like, these are words from the deathbed, if you will. If he had to say one last thing in the last moment of conversation, what would he say? The scene that in my head is from Armageddon, which is probably the greatest movie that's ever happened. Everyone seen that movie? Yes? Come on, I need some amens in the house of the Lord. Uh, and so that scene at the end, the one where like Liv Tyler's got her hand on the TV, nothing, right? But the scene that gets you is when Harry Stamper, okay, Bruce Willis, uh, is, in, is in the little shoot and Ben Affleck's outside, he's crying, he's like, you know, tell your daughter I love her, and da-da, and then he grabs his hose from behind, yanks it off, throws him into the chamber, then steps out, and he says, it's my turn now, kid, right? And you're like, oh, man! And then he gives these final words as AJ, Ben Affleck, is going up the tube, right? And he says, I love you, son, or I've always thought of you as a son, and I love you. He says, your job now is to go and take care of my daughter. Right? Your, your job now, is, th- this is my final words. I'm like getting emotional. I love that scene. It's crazy. I'm just like, I could go right now, guys. Like this would get weird for everybody, okay? Um, and so like you, and it's just this, and so he goes up and it's like, okay, you had one last thing to say and his encouragement was, you need to go and take care of Gracie, okay? Now, now here is Paul's last words to people he has bled with, that he has prayed with unto all hours of the night, that he has sacrificed for, that he has laid his life down for, that he has toiled with, okay? This is it, and I think we just, I want, man, this is the thrust and the desire that I wish for us to hear it as well, okay? Not from me, because listen, I'm not saying I'm Paul, right? But this is Paul saying, man, listen to this, church, and will we listen as he's teaching Ephesus the way he'd teach us this morning? Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself is more blessed to give than to receive. Six encouragements you get from Paul here, and we'll run through them quick. The first one is to pay careful attention to yourselves. Listen, church, take a triage consistently of your life. Where am I, right? When you read the word of God, it is meant to then pierce us and constantly look into us and say, hey man, how's it going, right? Like, where are you at with the Lord? Where are you at in community? Where are you at in loving your neighbor as yourself? These things are meant to be convictors. So consider your own self and then line it up with scripture. First, uh, number two, pay careful attention to the flock as overseers. Now, this clear encouragement, these are Ephesian elders that have gathered around to learn and listen from Paul. Now, we are going to glean from their wisdom and from the lesson that Paul gives them, but he's saying, listen up leadership 
okay? You need to uh, watch and be careful and watch over the people you lead. In the church, right, elders, leaders, watch over the flock and the sheep because, one, God purchased them with his blood. They are precious, right? They're not just other people. They are precious vessels of the grace of God purchased through the blood of Jesus, and we should treat them as such. Um, three, pay careful attention to, to wolves who will come in. So this is going to be careful attention to uh, the flock and what they're doing, but careful attention to wolves. In other words, teachers who would come in to seek to distort the gospel message. And gosh, guys, that's just true. And honestly, like the reality is, man, the Bible talks about this so much that oftentimes I'll be talking to Anthony and I'm like, I'm not one of those, am I? Or like we just, we just kind of sift through it because this is so scary and this is false teaching. And am I, uh, are we remaining faithful to the text and to scripture? And that is the key. I tell you, listen up, friends, this is just going to be very specific, but there are some podcasts that are out there. There are some blogs that are out there that you treat as biblical truth and you need to stop. Because it's just false, and it is destructive, and it is satanic, and it will pull you from the Lord, okay? It's just, and so when you listen, and you say, all right, man, I, I don't know, that sounds good. I'd like to believe that. I'd like to have my ear tickled that direction. You need to say, well, wait a second. Let's, let's go and consult the Word of God, okay? Let's consult the Bible, which leads us to, to four which is uh, remember my admonishment and go and admonish others um, to embrace correction, okay? To remember what Paul, right? Remember the ways I've corrected you. Now, we on the whole as humanity don't do well with correction. Like we struggle when people call us out in our junk. And it's usually the people that are closest to us that it seems to drive us the most crazy, Right? So honestly, like I love all of you guys in here, but some of you that I barely know, if you come and yell at me about something, I don't leave all that stressed about it, right? But if Verity calls me out on something, man, I'm like really upset, okay? Like there's might be a pillow with my fist in it, you know, at a certain level, like you moron, I'm an idiot, you know, and that. So the reality is, is those closest to us can bring about that correction. Paul has that, uh, that credibility in the way he speaks. And so embrace correction from those around you. So when a brother or sister says, hey, man, actually, going back to that, I don't know if you should listen to that. I think that's distorting your view of God. Man, tune your ears in. Don't turn it off. That's the grace and spirit of God trying to lead you in repentance back to himself. Okay. Uh, the next one, um, number five, remain in God's word, which builds us, uh, builds us up and secures us. There's just absolutely no better place to be than in the word of God, to constantly found the people of God. Uh, in, in what we are to believe and what is true and what is good in the way then we go and not just believe the right things but do the right things and influence the right way and love people as we're called to love them, okay? So, so read your Bible. I mean, as churchy as that is, read your Bible, man. Like, that's not, that's not rocket science. There's life in that thing. And so open it up uh, and read it. There's uh, my son and I. So what I'll do with Finley is I usually get up in the mornings uh, and, and usually he's up because he's crazy and wakes up at like 5.30, 6 a.m. every morning, right? And comes in, he's knocking and stuff. And so I'll wake up, usually I take a quick shower, I go downstairs and I open up my Bible, I do a little quiet time, right? And about six months to a year ago, 
uh, Finley started to take notice. Well, Daddy's going downstairs to do Bible. So he came in, and I'm there reading. And then he pulls on my arm and says, Daddy, can I, can I read the Bible too? Can I read my Bible? And I was like, heck yeah, man. And so he runs upstairs. He gets his little Jesus storybook Bible. And so now, and it doesn't happen all the time, usually actually Goldie and Bear or Little Einstein or something wins. Uh, but probably twice a week, that dude goes, gets his Bible, and him and I just read together, okay? Uh, and he's just asking questions, and usually it's like, what's that dude wearing? Or, you know, something silly, like in the, in, or like, why is Goliath such a jerk, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, but man, there is this, this cultivation of the word of God that we've seemed to have missed. Uh, there's like this skip of the generation. I was speaking with one of our elders with Randy about it, and he's, I don't know, 60, how old is Randy? 100, 57. And so, uh, and so Randy, he's not here, man, that's a bummer. Uh, so, so Randy, um, you know, he's like, we're just talking, and the way I hear him kind of talk about the Bible um, is not the way I often hear the average millennial talk about the Bible. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's something we need to course correct. And, I, I'm, and I've shared this to you before, but 1984 is the cutoff for millennial, and I'm born on January 1st, 1984, so I'm with y'all by one day, like nine, like nine hours solidarity, okay? And so um, let us millennials embrace the scriptures as the goodness and truth of God. Yes, amen. Last one. Six, work hard and steward your life to help those that cannot. It is more blessed to give than receive. Now, maybe you grew up seeing that on your mother's or your grandmother's pillow on their couch, right? Just kind of, you know, embroidered in there and cross-stitch. Um, it is true, believe it or not. It is better for you to give it away than to keep it. And it's not just about money. It's about life and resource and time that you invest in other people more than you invest in yourself. Now, I don't, now hear me. You need to be in a healthy place to do that. But that health isn't going to come based on stuff you do for yourself. It's going to come based on what God does for you. And he's constantly trying to pour his love, his truth, his grace, his mercy, and his hope in you through his word, through his presence, through the fact that the spirit of God dwells in the hearts and the lives of the believer. Okay? And so we're charged up by him to constantly give it away. Praise be the gospel because it's just that good. Verse 36, or sorry, the last couple of verses as we land here. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, they would, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. For me, this, this final scene is this, this beautiful scene of a flourishing community that understood the mission of God and the grace and gospel of Jesus. To say, all right, brother, you're right, this is it. But you gotta go because there's something more important than us. There's something more important than the moments of laughter and the time we have together. There's something more important than keeping you here. There's something more important than our joy and our stability. There's something more important than all that. And it's the gospel. And it's worth dying for. And it's worth sacrificing the things that we treasure the most in this world. It's worth the sacrifice of even those things. Because it's that good, and it's not just for you. It's for the world. And so you go and you give it away. Oftentimes, and I think purposefully, at the expense of self. Because that is the gospel. That a God who had everything gave it all up to come and be born in a manger. 
to live the life that he lived, born into, listen, what everyone thought was like an adulterous affair, okay? Born into a time when a king was trying to have all of the firstborns executed. Born into a barn as opposed to the heavenly throne that he had lived in his whole life, okay? Born into a time and a place where he would have been rejected even by those in his own family. And he did it all, laying down, humbling. And what Paul has done with the Ephesian church is just mimic Jesus. And that's it. He saw that Christ humbled himself, served other people, shared life with other people. And so he did the same thing. And so our call this morning is just to love Jesus, study Jesus, know Jesus, celebrate Jesus, be thankful to Jesus. And then just go and treat people the way Jesus treated people. Amen? Let's do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the fact that the Spirit is now with us. Jesus, that your Spirit is with us that allows us to constantly be drawn unto who you are, unto truth, unto goodness. God, that you constantly bring conviction and counsel that we would walk in your ways and your statutes. And God, I, I am the first to just admit that I don't often do that. That, God, I choose me all the time and, and, and at, the, at the expense of opportunities to love other people well, to sacrifice my own security, my own desires for the sake of others. Christ, it's, it's not miraculous. It's just what you did. And, God, you called us to just be your disciples, to be your people, to follow you, to act like you, to look like you, to be a foreshadow of the coming you that will be with us for all eternity. And so, God, we just pray for conviction from the Spirit to do just that very thing, to just be Christ to this world as we continue to celebrate the work that you've done in our own lives and lives around us. So, God, again, not a ton of good happens outside of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be in this place, your presence would be here, and that you would change us, convict us, transform us, and send us, God, to be your people. For those here who do not know you, who just visit them, who just think most of what I said was absolute craziness, that's fine. God, I pray that they'd meet you and encounter you, that you would bring revelation and truth and hope and love and show that, God, everything you've called your church to, you embody. To love the other as much as, if not more, than we love ourselves. To lay it down and to build up a credibility here at this church and and all the churches here in our city that we would be a beacon of hope for the city of Flagstaff. We love you, Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen.